Welcome to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. I know you are here wanting to change and rewrite your story. You are desiring to step into the impact that you know you were here to create. I am here to guide you with the proven tools and strategies used by myself and our speakers to support you in taking radical responsibility in your life and learning how to own your choices to change your story. My name is Marsha Van Weinsberg. I am a storytelling business coach, master NLP trainer, speaker, podcaster, and seven times published author. My clients have found freedom and purpose from overcoming their shame stories and learning how to share them with the world. I am so grateful you are here. Let's get started. Welcome back to the show. Today, we are speaking with Tanya Joya. Now, Tanya and I connected through podcasting, and she is somebody that I wish I could have possibly met years ago. I We've connected on many, many occasions now, and I love the work that she's doing, and it's so needed in this world. So Tanya is a theological recovery coach. She knows that for every addict, five people are impacted. We talk about numbers, we talk about stats in the show, and it is so freaking powerful. Of course, we come through our lived experiences. This is how it happens. She shares a lot of her challenges that she walked through, like striving for a career to make her whole, chasing a man to fulfill her, jumping into unhealed relationships, managing new babies, and an addicted husband, as well as her own codependency. I'm running her own business thinking that money would save her. Finally, Tanya decided she deserved more in her life, from her life. She set out to learn everything, AA, Al-Anon, Celebrate Recovery, and Deep Therapy, EMDR, and decided to help heal others who also share very similar challenges by getting her professional coaching certification. Tanya works with women who want to finally heal their marriage and family while supporting their husband through recovery from addiction. She uses her unique dancing with joy process to help them become the woman her husband cherishes and the mother who places God and love first to create a truly connected, loving and supportive family. We dove deep into her story, the stats that she shared and the info about addiction recovery and how she decided to work on herself first. I love how she says it. She was raising someone else's husband and wanted more for her life and to make an impact for others. We talked about the addiction substance abuse is rampant and literally a pandemic on its own. One that has a ripple effect of impacting five people for every single person dealing with addiction. The numbers in the States were 46% are dealing with addiction. And this is, I let her go into this, but she talks about how it is for every single person that impacts five people. So you can see how it is literally pandemic on its own. We dive into the topic and understanding of what codependency is, what it means, and how it had a turning point for her as she realized that if her husband got well, that she wouldn't have a dog. And that is the definition of codependency. This is such a powerful episode, and I know it's going to speak to somebody. 
Welcome to the show today, Tanya. I am thrilled to have you here. You and I have crossed paths multiple times over the last few months, and there's a lot of similarities in stories and mission, and we've actually become like some voice note friends that I didn't expect happening. So I'm just, I'm excited to have you here on the show and to really share your story and the work that you're doing here in the world. Thank you, Marsha. This has been so much fun. Um, just hearing what you have done and how you have said, I am not going to be labeled by the stigma. I'm going to do what I need to do for my family. It, it was a super heart connection at that point in time. And I really appreciate those voice note connections. It's been fabulous. <laughs> I, I cannot say this enough and I'll probably throw in the intro too, but this is one of the beautiful things about podcasting is I get to connect with people from all over the world. And so many times people will say, well, I don't have anybody in my area and I don't have anybody that I know. And I think you and I are very, we have different stories, but sim there's similarities there. It's like, we are so much more alike than different. Sometimes the person who can understand a little bit of the messy parts of your journey that you're walking through is literally somebody you've just met. So I just want to say that. Absolutely. It's almost the guy you sit next to on the plane, right? <laughs> Suddenly you've connected or you've can I connected with a gentleman in the laundromat at the YMCA and we ended up trading books and all of those things because it's just it, it just happens if you're open, if you're open and, and ready to receive. Yeah, 100%. So I would love it if you would share a little bit about who you are. We're going to dive into all the work that you're doing. But what is the thing that lights your passion with the work that you're doing today? The thing that lights my passion with the work that I'm doing today is I am raising somebody else's husbands. I want a better community. I want more um, openness. I also have found in the recovery community some of the people who have the most depth, quality, alignment, awareness, and they can be from all walks of life. Addiction does not care <laughs> if you live in a million dollar home or if you're barely scraping by in a studio. It does not care what your socioeconomic status is, the color of your skin, anything to do with that. So that has been a great joy and that I am raising two young men. I want them we all want our children to have better opportunities than we had, but I want them not just to have financial opportunities, but emotional opportunities and opportunities to build lives um, where they are aware of who they are and what they're doing. And you can't do that if you're numbing out. No. And I was just going to ask you that. So being able to like aware of who you are and your emotions, what you're feeling. I love that because it's not just the financial thermostat like the emotional being aware emotionally, understanding that is really important. And you cannot do that if you're numbing out. And I think we'd agree, like, I don't know what the numbers are right now, but the amount of people who are using anything to numb out and not deal with or just plain avoidance of what's happening, it's skyrocketing. It's like absolutely skyrocketing. So you've had a lot of experience, firsthand experience in dealing with this. And so I would love it if you would just share a snippet of your story and what led you to 
this space that you're doing now. And then I just really want to dive into all the incredible work that you're doing and some of your concepts of what you share about addiction, I think are really powerful. When we start with me, I have to say, hey, I didn't learn a lot of this until later. And I was very naive when I started in this process. What I didn't realize was how, I'm going to put it in this term and people can claim however they want, how sick I was, how confused I was, how out of touch with myself I was. So I married really young at um, 23, a wonderful man. And somewhere in there, about five years in, I said, this isn't working. This isn't what I want. And he said, I need to be back with my family. And so we did a mutual split, no kids. Well, I left there having had years of therapy, working through this, thinking I was well, figuring all these things out. But there was such an enormous blind spot that when I met my now husband, we he said, well, I smoke a little pot. And I thought, well, that's not a big deal. Let's, let's just do this. But what I have figured out is my trauma, my issues, I, I tell this to people, I say, you know, if there are 50 good looking men at a picnic somewhere and they all have basically the same qualifications, except there, there is one, just one that lives with his mother, doesn't make money, is on something or is disconnected enough that he can't really hold a relationship, then that's the one I'm going to pick. Now, the question is, why would I pick that person? Because I was not able to receive, because I needed somebody to control, because I had these tendencies that I didn't understand were that was requiring this person. So we connected in a trauma bond that trauma bond. Um, there were many, many good things in the early years and we have two beautiful sons and we're still married. We've worked through, I would say we're back up to the normal level of working through, but that trauma bond created a power struggle, created domination, created all kinds of things that we got to the point where I was literally crazy um, there was a point in time where um, he brought home tobacco instead of milk. We walked out to the car together and literally, Marsha, if I could have killed him, I would have killed him. I physically attacked him to the point where he laid me on the ground in the snow. He went back inside. <laughs> um, that was right before the breaking point of where what I say is we we got involved with the courts and the cop system. Um, and it was cops, courts and chickens because we had 400 chickens at that time. 400 chicken cobbler 400 chickens chickens <laughs> okay so you are like you are so incredibly unique and i'm just going to i'm going to highlight this and i think this is a really powerful thing i want people to take away there is a massive level of ownership in how you share your story and not a lot of people do this right this is it's and i think it's really powerful and i think this is probably why you're so designed to be the person doing the work that you're doing now because you can look at it and say like a trauma bond requires two people it does Absolutely. it requires two people and it requires you know knowing that we're all playing a part in the story that we're walking through um nobody likes that light shone back on them right it's a lot easier to say it's them but you're speaking and sharing it from the standpoint and i think this is like incredibly 
incredibly powerful. And I think it is a reason why you are able to support so many people because you can see both sides of it, right? You can see how things are contributing. Like when we were in the thick of it and a counselor gave me the book on codependent no more. And I literally was like, I don't need that. I am not this ridiculous. I'm not codependent. I barely got through the first page and I was like, Oh crap. (laughs) I am. I had no idea that. So where was the turning point for you? Yes. You got involved with like cops and courts and chickens and you got into that point. Where was the turning point that you really sat and owned your part of the journey? That, that came in stages. So it really did come in stages. So we, we, this is going to sound like an interesting gift. We were gifted (laughs) a full restraining order, complete separation, no contact, only by text around the boys um, that first go round. That was super important. We both, I say, I'm going to speak for myself only. I needed that kind of silence. I needed to figure out what was going on and how we got here. Because I truly believe that we make micro choices that get us to the place where we're ending up. Right. So we, we got here. Um, and in that stage, if nobody has seen this, look it up, you can still get it online. I did a course called wounded by shame healed by grace. That course shifted my whole mindset of this didn't come from out of nowhere. I was complicit in it, if not overt in it. I was also creating a lot of my own issues and I I will go with the AA. I didn't cause it. I didn't, uh, I didn't cause it, create it or cure it. On the other hand, I could influence it. And everything I was doing was like, I don't know if you've ever held, held your toddler. He puts your feet in your belly and shoves that way. That's what I was doing. I was doing everything. I've tried it all yelling, screaming, threatening, withholding, um, moving money around, taking the kids and leaving for six weeks at a time, shooting guns off in the backyard, but we're not telling the police that. Um, I have done all of it. If any of that worked, we would have been fine, right? If any of that worked. So when I did Wounded by Shame, Heal by Grace and some therapy with that, I realized that I was part of the system so if you if you go to the family systems theory, I was part of the system and that if he got well, I didn't have a job. My job was to make the family work together. My job was to make this work and to manage him and manage. It's no wonder I was tired. I was managing him. I was managing the money. I was managing myself. I was managing the babies. Um, we had horses, 400 chickens, all that other stuff. I was managing it all. And if I wasn't physically doing it. I was doing it in my mind all the time. That one hits me. I remember that. I know that feeling like that became a full-time job trying to fix my kids, like literally. And going to sleep was like for the weak and faint of heart. I had stuff to do. This is ridiculous. Like that was my job. Eventually that became my job. So I can actually really resonate and relate to that. Thank you for sharing that because I can also say like want I, wanted by shame, healed by grace. I've never heard wounded. of that. Wounded, sorry. Wounded. 
Oh, couldn't read my own writing. Wounded by shame, healed by grace. Um, for me, some of the turning points were learning and understanding what shame meant, what guilt meant, what compassion meant, what grace meant. That was a turn, like that was, they were light bulb moments for me that I was like, wait, what? Like shame is something I'm creating because I'm like, I, I just didn't understand that I had a role in this and that I was the one feeding shame. And so, you know, if you take the concepts of understanding shame, you and I've talked like extensively about shame. Mm -hmm. Can you share to a listener what shame is and how you found your way to release the hold of shame in your life? So shame, shame versus guilt. Shame is I am bad. There's nothing I can do to change it. I am bad. Okay. Guilt is different because guilt is I have done a behavior that has called caused hurt or harm to someone or even myself. It's like a flare that goes up and it goes. And I can I can say I'm sorry. I can ask for forgiveness. I can make it right. I can pay for the car accident. I can do all those things with guilt. But with shame, I can't change that. I have decided that I am bad. So no matter what I do, it will be bad. Now, in my tradition, in my Christian tradition, it's the belief that Jesus died on the cross to take away that shame. And so I don't have to live there. Even if another person decides not to forgive me, I can go to my higher power, ask for forgiveness when I have done what I can to make it right for the other person. So I don't have to live in that shame. When I act out of shame, <laughs> I I do things that are detrimental to myself and other people because I don't believe the three things that I think are important. I am worthy, I am loved, and I'm never alone. So when I believe those three things, then I'm not going to act out of shame. When I act out of shame, I also because I feel so terrible about myself, I have to control and perfect everything around me so that it will look okay. And if it doesn't look okay, then again, it has re-triggered and hit my shame grid. Mm -hmm. The other place you're going to hit my shame grid is if you say something to me that I'm already feeling bad about. Maybe my kids weren't dressed well. Maybe they didn't act politely someplace. I'm already feeling bad about that, that I don't have a home life that's structured well for them or that they're not getting what they need. So if you inadvertently said, oh, well, you know, he's wearing orange and purple or whatever, that would hit my shame grid and really sink in instead of if I'm feeling worthy, loved and never alone, then I'd be like, you know what? Today was just kind of an off day. It doesn't reflect on who I am as a person. So that's how I would describe shame. I love that explanation because I do think, and and I know people will relate to this, like there are times that some things happen that feel huge, but we're able to almost just like wash them off our back. Like it's like, okay, yep, that's all right. That happened. There's nothing I can do. And then other times, sometimes our reaction is not appropriate for how like in in connection where it's like so amplified. And a lot of times I'll look at it and say, okay, what am I not doing for myself that's leading to this kind of reaction? 
I mean, it's always, there's always something that I'm not doing. I, I guarantee that. Or just sometimes we need to unplug and pull away and recharge ourselves and take care of ourselves. So when you're living in an environment like this, you, as you said, you had a, there was restraining, um, I guess a restraining order. Is that how you said it? Yeah, um, the restraining order. Yeah. So that th- th- gave you time and space to heal and work on yourself, to be able to yeah. see things. And I think that's actually really important because when we talk about dealing with addiction, substance abuse, and you are living in the environment of what the, the circus, the chaos that's happening, it's really challenging to work on yourself at that time when like the chaos is in the house. Like it's just, and I know that that is something people are going to be relate, can relate to. So during that time, as you were really starting to build on yourself, you explained incredibly well what shame is. What were some of the things you had to do to help yourself to continue to grow into the version that we see now? Woo, this version didn't come around for probably the next 10 years. But what I did to grow into the version that was there was um, God is so good. I, I, we were living in a house on 20 acres that neither one of us could afford, which is pretty much the circumstance for a lot of people when that kind of cer- separation happens. And I didn't really have um, a full-time job at the time. My guys were three and five. So I needed to go to work full-time. Um, I needed to find community for my boys and to sort all that out. And in doing that, because I was forced to do that, uh, and because this was in the paper in in the States, when somebody gets arrested, it gets, it goes in the paper. There was no more hiding. You're, You're not hiding. So everybody, they didn't know the internal, but what I began to do is I'd already begun building community because we hit, we were kind of living separate lives already. But what I began to do was really talk a lot more openly about it mm-hmm. and not in the sense of character assassinating my husband, but in, I need help. I can't do this by myself. I need support. And so I had several um, close friends who really surrounded me. Lots of people loved on my boys our church stepped in and really supported us. So that becoming human, that this is something that happens, it's common to humanity. 46% of the people in the United States, at least, struggle with some level of addiction. And if five people are affected by every one person, it's all of us. So coming out, (laughs) I say coming out, but coming out and saying that. And then the other thing I did, which people are going to see think is odd once once I once I explain it. Um, I'm a licensed esthetician, so I worked in a salon. You can imagine some of the feedback I got. Oh, honey, he doesn't deserve you. You should just go find another man. You should just do this. This this was wrong, blah, blah, blah. Yes, a lot of the things were wrong, but trying to explain to them how I fed into it was really hard. So what I did was that's when I began to learn that they're saying this out of their love for me they don't want to see me hurting, but if I'm hurting, they feel like they're hurting. I mean, imagine a salon environment. We're all caretakers. We all do this. They're hurting too. They don't like hurting. So they want me to solve this now. Right. So I had to lovingly say to them, man, I really appreciate what you're saying. I am really trying to stay married. So if if we could either not talk about this, you know, I, I'll do my part and not talk about this. Or if if we could 
you know, just not run him down. I really appreciate your, your support. Um, and, and that's a shift that I make with my clients too, is that you didn't, he, he or she or whoever didn't create this all by themselves. You have a part in it and the decide what you want. You know, if you're ready to move on, then, then that's okay too. do what you need to do. But if decide who you're going to listen to, who gets the opportunity to speak into your life. Cause if they're running down this person that you're trying to reconnect with and work through this, that's not a voice you want in your ear. So who are you willing to listen to? Cause you don't have to listen to everybody. No, no, that's really powerful. Thank you for sharing that. It's, this is also, I think it's safe to say a topic that makes people uncomfortable. They don't like Very. it. They don't like it. We like to pretend that it doesn't doesn't impact a lot of people. And you just said that like forty six percent of the population in the U.S. is that what you said? Yes. Who are experiencing some form of addiction, substance abuse. So, and that's a what's the definition of that? What's like, what is considered it to be a red flag that addiction or substance use is a issue? When you are deciding to not do the things that you care about, do the things that would support you, do the things that would um, create a better life for you. And you're choosing something that will become detrimental if it is not right now. So this isn't this isn't a glass of wine on Friday. This isn't even really the gray drinking area. This is I have stepped over into I don't necessarily want to make these choices, but this is how I am functioning right now. And you're losing jobs and family and money and you're basically your choices are being taken away. Mm, thank you for like really explaining that because I know like it, there's still a lot of gray area on all sides of that, but that's a great way to explain it. Like I have spoken with um, people, especially during the pandemic, and I was actually talking to a friend who's going to hear this episode today. And I said how actually, in my opinion, addiction is the pandemic. That is the, like, that is what we are dealing with here is addiction. Lack of resources is the pandemic. And it's just like, oh my gosh, she was like, that's, that's true. And I'm like, it is, it's, it really is. Now I think taking that one step further, you said it and I've felt this, but I don't know if I've heard anybody say it this way. Five people are impacted for every single person dealing with addiction, five people. So now 46% of the population is affected by addiction. We're not talking like just, we're talking actual addiction. And five people are affected to every single person of that. You can see now how this is literally a pandemic that we're dealing with. If you, I mean, the United States is coming up on Thanksgiving on Thursday, and then we'll bump into the holidays in December. I would challenge anyone to go to their family gathering, no matter how big or how small. And just, you don't have to ask anybody, but just think through who in that gathering has openly talked about addiction and then multiply that. Uh, you know, I could give you a variable probably by three, you know, multiply it by three. And every family, anytime I talk to a family, they're like, we don't have it in our immediate family, but 
cousin so-and-so or uncle so-and-so or grandfather so-and-so or grandmother so-and-so. And we're not even talking about... So addiction is not... We always think of it in substance use disorder ideas, but we're not even talking about pornography. We're, we're not even talking about, you know, workaholism or... um <clears throat> relationship addiction, my particular flavor, sex addiction, which is different from pornography. It has a whole different flavor to it. Um, uh, shopping. I mean, we could label a whole, whole bunch of things that are food that are numbing. So we're not even talking about that. It's funny. Probably all of us have something that we turn to, to get out of our present. Um, and, how we look at that is, is it causing us to move away from significant relationships, move away from our goals, move away from what's important to us? And are we using it to numb our feelings rather than really having feelings? So the issue is not what we're using. That's the solution. That's what works, right? I don't want to go home and fight with my husband. So I'm going to have a drink before I get home. Then things will go much smoother. That's a solution. It's Gabra Mate, a fellow Canadian, who says, where's the pain? Where's mm -hmm. the pain? Why am I having to cover up this pain? I think there are, I mean, I just, I, I'm so grateful to have you here because the way you're explaining this, I think is going to hit and resonate with so many people. I also think it's going to open up eyes of like, shoot, maybe this actually is a problem. I don't even realize it. Like some people don't, might not realize it. I agree with you. Um, addiction is far past dealing with substances. We're talking like there's so many different ways that we as a society have, are working to avoid feeling, right? Avoidance, avoid dealing with something, avoid feeling something. I mean, I, I catch myself, I catch myself in this avoidance sometimes. It's like, I don't want to deal with this right now. But it's like, it doesn't go away until I do deal with it. And so, yes, we are learning that. I also have had very firsthand experience where, you know, sometimes people can shame you for choosing not to drink. Absolutely. Like, it's like, what, what? I don't want to. What, like, what is the, what I just don't want? Oh, you don't do that now? And I'm like, I just said, I don't want one. Like, I don't, I just, it becomes a thing. And so it's, I think, I, I I don't know the quote, but it's like alcohol is the one thing that you are constantly questioned for, for not having, like for saying no to, you know, nobody's questioning me that I'm working out five or six days a week and that I prioritize sleep or that I, you know, prioritize my water and I do, no, nobody cares about that. But if I say I don't choose alcohol, like what's the matter with you? So it's a very, it's an interesting topic where it can also bring a lot of shame that is, you know, just on top of everything else. Well, there, let's put food shaming in there too. I mean, we're fixing to go into our big holiday. You already had yours. There yeah. is food shaming, um, especially, so, so we're kind of back to how we get our values, um, you know, who we think we are. If I've prepared this beautiful dinner and you come over and you you don't eat any of it, do I think, oh, well, she's just not, she's not hungry or this is not something that she likes or she's just here for my company. She really likes me. She doesn't care whether I feed her or not. No, I think, 
oh, well, maybe that's bad or maybe that's too salty. It's a reflection on me. It's kind of like women in houses. You know, if you come over to my house and it's a mess, then obviously I must not be a good person because I can't keep my house clean. Ridiculous. Sorry. I know. It's so it's totally nuts. So that's where you back up to looking at the shame grid. Where's the pain? Where's the messages you've been told on what is good, what's not good? That's the later part. You've asked me, you know, how did I get here? That's the later part is that awareness of I don't have to perform. I don't have to do the dance to get the hug. I am valuable just as I am. Don't have to do the dance to get the hug. Wow. That's like, that's really powerful. That's really powerful. So you then decided like through this work, like through this work on yourself, obviously some therapy, obviously some support. You've mentioned a few things that you did do. Where was the next turning point that you're like, I think I'm supposed to do something with this because it's one thing to own that, like own that story that most people apply shame to. You and I've talked about this at great lengths. It's one thing to own it. It's another to say, I think I'm going to do something with it. Like, I think I'm going to do something good with it. Where was that turning point for you? It started with a blog. It went to a podcast and then there was a really painful episode. So, um, we had some issues happening with, with my oldest son around 13 at we were getting into a struggle, um, especially he and I, anybody who's been through that adolescence with any child, it's like, it's not the easiest thing, but it was getting more and more serious. He was seeing, um, a therapist that I ended up seeing and she came to me after working with him for several months. And she said, it is not safe in your house for him to do his deep work. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, it was knife through the heart and I said, me, it's me. You you need to shift me. Um, I was the ready. I was the one who was ready to take it on. Did two and a half years worth of EMDR. And for anybody who's listening who doesn't think that one person can make a difference, one person can change the whole tenor of the family. One person doing their work. And as my therapist said, it often needs to be the loudest person, which is again me. <laughs> doing their work will change everything. We have completely shifted our dynamic. Um, He just graduated from high school. He's an all-star football player. And we were at the point of um, he needs to be somewhere else Mm -hmm. uh, five years ago. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Again, back to ownership. You're just like in this space of saying, yep, this is me. And I know I have to work on this. Um, I didn't, I didn't realize that while we were in the thick of it with our kids, it really, it took actually a cousin who I love dearly, who was actually an addictions counselor and her and I had like a really long session and she just opened up my eyes in the sense that I'd spent my entire life around addiction. I didn't even realize that like I, we equate addiction with like violent like behavior. I, I say we, apparently I did, with violent, aggressive behavior. But as we went through it and we went through like history and experiences, I was, she was like, Marsha, you, your entire life has been surrounded by this. Mm-hmm. You can't possibly help your kids until you start working on you. There's no way. And I was like, Amen. I needed to hear that. And I mean, I'm so grateful I had her to do that with, 
But that was a moment where it was like, okay, so I've got to figure some stuff out for me because how, like, what is the saying that, you know, if you don't heal what broke you, then you bleed all over everyone who didn't, like who, is that right? No, I didn't say it right. But he reminded me that all those years that I avoided dealing with the emotions, the 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 feelings it was never safe to feel was literally bleeding all over the circumstance that I was dealing with my kids. Not saying what they weren't doing was right. Like I'm not saying that, mm-hmm. but it was it was just understanding that. So you're back to that piece of ownership right now. And I just think that's amazing. So as you started to work on you, then did you have this feeling like, I think I can actually help others with this? Let me throw in one more hurt people, hurt people. Mm-hmm. So if I'm coming from a place of hurt, I am probably acting out of that instead of the person I want to be. That's That was always my struggle was I want to be this person, but I'm behaving like this person. And so until I did the deep work, I didn't understand why my alignment was so off, mm-hmm. or what was going on. Um, that is part of what made me want to help other people is I'm looking at this child that I brought into the world. You know, my husband, I can look at him and go, well, this was really somebody else's problem. I didn't, you know, I got him fully formed. (laughs) I didn't create, I didn't create this. I didn't really, you know, do anything like this, but I I'm, I'm looking at my beautiful, dearly wanted child. I didn't have children until I was 35 because I wanted a husband before I had children. So dearly wanted dearly loved and this child is hurting so much that he is he is causing damage to himself to the rest of the family you know just doing just things that are really going to lead him in a direction that was really painful for all of us Mm -hmm. Um, so in looking at that i thought we could really help people by sharing this story and by saying Look, it doesn't have to, we, we, like you said, we think of addiction as, you know, living on the street or this. No, 70% of the people are functioning. They're paying for their drugs. They're not stealing anything. They're not doing anything like that. They're, they're actually paying for it out of free choice and, and doing what they're doing. Um, and I looked at this and I thought, so, so I'm a Harvard graduate. I, I am a highly intelligent woman. I come from a basic middle-class family that had its dysfunctions. I learned later a little bit more than I thought, but no more than no more, no less than any, anybody else. I don't look like your typical person who suddenly the cops are showing up in your front yard. Right. Yeah. And I have had this discussion. We have, but you know, what's going on behind the closed doors. And I thought, if this is happening in my house, not that I'm any better or any worse than anybody else, then there needs to be more conversation about this. And again, we're back to I'm raising somebody else's husbands. How can I turn them out like this and be the female? Here's the key that I really want everybody here. Be the female role model that they're going to bring home a wife that looks just like me and I will hate her. I needed to straighten myself up. Mm. Wow. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing the way that you did. I think that's just like, I think it's so incredibly powerful. And one of the biggest stepping stones for what you created, what you're doing, because you were able to come from a space of ownership without shame. 
right? Like this is again where I really feel like I feel, oh my gosh, if I could say this once, I say it a hundred times. It's the fact that as humans, we recognize our feelings, but then we immediately shame ourselves for what we're doing, which doesn't change anything, right? So it's one thing to um, accept that, own that and say, okay, what can we do with it now? So I'm assuming as a person, how different are you today compared to who you used to be and how you showed up in your life? My husband gave me a really great compliment a couple weeks ago, or maybe a couple months ago. He said, you are one of the maturest people I know. And I went, I am. Because I don't feel like that in our relationship. Now, what I want to remind people is what I did was take my hands off of controlling everybody. So, you know, this still could have gone awry with my son. It could go awry with my husband. Everything could still go awry. But what I have come into, this is the peace that I have. What I've come into is I am going to be okay. Yes, I want these connections. Yes, I want to be connected with them. But them being happy doesn't, it's the weird cycle of my life centered around making you happy because if you weren't happy and safe, then I wasn't going to be happy and safe. And if I didn't keep working towards that, then my whole life was going to fall apart. And I don't know if I was going to drag you down with me, but I was going to make sure you were buoyant so I could be buoyant. Now I have a piece that says all my men are over six feet. So I look up to everybody. You guys are free to make your own choices. And I want to love you the best I can. I have some boundaries that say, we, we can't do this, but I want to love you the best I can. But you being well, I, I am not dependent on you being well for me to be well, which is a total opposite of where we started. That's so powerful. I am not dependent on you being well for me to be well. And I'm going to take this one step further, regardless whether you had dealt with addiction or substance abuse or mental health, isn't that a healthier approach to life in general anyways? Oh, absolutely. So so there are plenty of families and it could be either partner or child or something like that where you get this caregiver role and maybe there is an addiction. There's probably some kind of dysfunction, but maybe there is an addiction, but that is the role. And again, we talked about earlier of if you take away my job, then I don't know what my role is in the family. Then I don't have any value. Then if I don't have any value, who am I? And then I go into the total enemy. I don't have a name anymore. Oh my gosh, I'm lost. What I had to come back out of was how the world perceives me. And again, I back up into my faith. You can choose whatever outside of you is for you. If I place my value on the ever-changing whims of other human beings or my job or my net worth or this, that, or the other, then man, it's, it's a fight every day. And quite frankly, Marsha, I just got tired. I I can't, I can't fight this anymore. Oh my God. I'm just sorry. I'm laughing here only because I'm like, I remember saying, okay, I don't have it to fight anymore. Like, and even though the things that I used to jump on to be in a fight about, I'm like, "Mm, not mine. Like, it's just not mine. It's not mine. Even family have been, there have been times they're like, don't you have anything else to say? And I'm like, that one's not mine either. Like, it's just not mine. I just choose differently. Because I understand the power of like me not losing my energy. I know, I know what battles are there to fight. So, 
you've taken this into you now, like our coaching and supporting. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. And you're also doing an incredible summit. I actually just got all of the information on it. <laughs> but looking through, I'm like, geez, you impressed the hell out of me. I don't know how you've done all of this, but it looks amazing. Anyways, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> I'm only laughing to keep from crying right now. So the summit is in the works. It's December 7th, 9th, 7th through 9th. And it is the Blessed Family Recovery Summit. Marsha has graciously agreed to be a speaker and is talking about shame. So Mm -hmm. seek that out. Um, That has been something that has been just precious to me. We've put together 29 speakers. We Mm -hmm. are doing, we're covering what I found when I am at home with these three and five-year-old little boys where I had, we didn't have cell phones where I lived and I had the internet to where you'd go plunk a key and then go do some laundry and plunk a key and then go do some laundry. There weren't resources. Yes, there was Al-Anon. I was already in Al-Anon, but if that didn't suit you, there wasn't anything that I could find. So this puts together um, a huge 10 people who run different programs um, just specifically around families and addiction. That's out there. Then um, we've got this whole section on emotions. From shame to joy to anger to overwhelm, all that section on there. And then the section I'm really proud of is um, a section around children because it's kind of like when people say to me, they don't know we haven't talked about it. They know. They know. They know more than you do. (laughs) So that's going on. And then what's going to happen right after that is a launch of the Grace and Recovery Framework, which is particularly for women. You can be moms or aunts or grandmas or whoever who are dealing with family addiction. Because here's what we know. You give a man a fish, he eats for a day. You teach a man to fish, he eats for a lifetime. You give, you teach a woman to fish and she teaches the whole community. So I am trying to get it right at the person who can really listen and the person who can influence. And it's um, designed as a group coaching. So what I found is in handling all kinds of everything from craft community reinforcement groups to thrive groups to now the invitation to change groups is behaviors make sense. And if you are a woman and you wake up in the morning, most of us know exactly what's happening in our house and how the house feels and what's going on. We just have this vibration, vibrational piece. I'm sure there's some men that do too. You 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 didn't create it you can't you can't cure it but you can influence it and influencing it by depleting yourself is never going to work no thank you for all of that like i'm just sitting here shaking my head the whole time i promise you if you were listening these are the resources i wish were available like 7 8 years ago I really, really do. Like this is this, even just this conversation I wish had been available because I say this with full honesty. I literally thought I was the only person dealing with it. I I know that sounds so naive. I really did. Everywhere I went, it was like, oh, well, that's, you know, that typically happens with those kinds of families or with this family. And it's like, yeah, really? Because like, I just don't understand. Like, what are we doing wrong? And through the process, like 10 years ago, finding a Facebook group with 100,000 moms in it, 
that was a moment to me that I just went, wait a minute here. Like this mm-hmm. is just a, what's happening and why are we not talking about this? So the work that you are doing, honestly, Tanya, the work that you do, the work that you're doing with clients, I want to take it and say that if 46% of the population is dealing with addiction and for every single person, there are five people impacted, I also want to believe that the exact opposite is the case, that for every person you are working with who is one of those five who was affected by someone close to them dealing with addiction, you are now creating a ripple outside of that that reaches. So I'm just putting <laughs> your numbers on you. I, 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 I've never thought of it that way, but that that's very, very kind. And what we know now is there are a lot of people who are using as um, the Center for Motivation and Change talks about science and kindness because we we have tried now for over oh, close to 100 years um this punishment um design and if that worked we wouldn't be talking so there's got to be a flip on that and and the idea there's a phrase in um the the Al-Anon program that says um dealing with an alcoholic is too much for most of us well, the truth is the alcoholic dealing with themselves is too much for them. So to punish them and shame them and say, get out, don't come, those types of things, and not to develop some way to connect. And, I, and I'm saying this in a, in a loving way. There are times where you have to set very clear boundaries, but you could still go have a meal at a restaurant when they're available. You could still, you know, text them and say, hey, thinking about you, you know, there's there's no reason to do this model of complete removal of relationship, because here's the other key. We know statistically for long term sobriety that the family remaining connected in some format is their biggest hope. Mm -hmm. I that and I'm just. Again, I know we're on a podcast, but I'm sharing some personal stuff because this just, this really hits home. And I, over my years, I haven't crossed too many people like yourself where it's really hitting in this message that this is the, this is the work that I wish I had had available. You know, there were times when our kids were young, they were not allowed to stay here. And people thought that was the most atrocious thing we could ever do to our kids. We would pick them up. We would go take them out to eat somewhere and we would drop them back off where they were living, which was a horrible place at the time. That was our way of trying to stay connected. I love you. This is not how we're going to live. This is not how it works. I'm not shaming you, but I still love you. And this is me trying to stay connected as best as I can. And so I think that that's a really powerful thing that you're saying, because you can still do that, respect your boundaries, take care of yourself and still love them. It doesn't have to be a complete all or nothing. And that's that's not what we've been taught. That's not what society thinks. I think you were asking me about turning points. And the other huge turning point for me was giving, um, in this case, it was my husband giving him the, I call it the dignity to die in a ditch, which is an awful statement, but giving him the dignity to make his own choices and not to keep coming after him to make different choices. I needed to respect him as a human being making choices that he chose to make. Yeah. Um, and I know as moms, 
that's really hard for us to do with our children. And don't get me wrong. There are times, especially when they're really little, that you do have to make the choices. But as they come into those teenage years, you're always going to be their mom. But find ways to connect. My son and I, do we have time for one more story? I'm sorry. Okay. So around 13, when all this craziness was happening, when we were having such a hard time, um, there was also a Dave Ramsey um, financial seminar for young people happening, and I really wanted him to go to it. So I did what any mom does, and I bribed him. <laughs> and it was about eight weeks, and I said, okay, I'll take you out to breakfast at your favorite restaurant if you'll go to this thing. So we sit down, and he he looks at, we've ordered, and he looks at me, and he says, so what's the agenda for this meal? He was 13. He was 13. Yeah, he knew. He knew. So I learned right then, and it's something that we still do. If I want to spend time with him, if I want to know something about him, not to show up with an agenda. Now, there are times that I have an agenda because that's me. I own it. I am putting out there. This is my agenda. But when I take him out for breakfast or when we sit down to have lunch or do something like that, I really have to shut down. I was using that as a connector. I thought I needed to run the meeting and what he needed me to be was his mom and just hold the space. I think that's harder than running the meeting because we're like, Oh, it's kind of like being at the, at the party and you don't know anybody and you're not drinking and you're kind of standing there with your, with your soda, with your soda water and lime and going, what do I need to do? Well, I needed to settle within myself so that I could be, I, I really wanted this connection. I didn't know how to do it. Mm. So I stopped having an agenda and we forged our relationship. Now, on one hand, he's punching his fist through some walls. On the other hand, we're having this breakfast every Sunday morning. It's not perfect. It's not. But I mean, we're learning as we go. And I think, again, I say this many, many times. I think the lessons that we've had to learn firsthand through parenting teens in this kind of experience. I actually think that they're valuable lessons that I would have had to learn regardless if we'd ever dealt with substance abuse or addiction. I really do. And I think this is it. People ask me that all the time. Isn't it terrible you had to learn this? I'm like, actually, I think these are lessons that I would have had to learn regardless. It's just that our circumstances forced me to learn them sooner. What what I learned later on (laughs) was this type of behavior, my behavior was showing up everywhere. It was at work. It was with friendships. It was um, in the PTO that I was trying to run. It was all over the place. And only that child was astute enough and brave enough to say it out loud. Mm -hmm. So good. So good. And so true. Honestly, Thank you for everything that you've shared. I will make sure everything is in the show notes, but I would love to know um, where is the place that's best for people to connect with you and learn more about the work that you do. So um, my name is spelled T-A-N-Y-A-G-I-O-I-A.com as the website. And then I have a Facebook page i think it's called addiction connection recovery which is the instagram and also the um the youtube but where i'm proudest is i have a podcast called sober on purpose 
And I love that podcast. So anywhere you get great podcasts, go listen to Marsha and then take a little dive over to mine. Oh, please do. And yours, like I loved being a guest on your show. We had a great conversation. Like I said, we've had multiple conversations. I'm grateful that our paths have crossed and that I've been able to have you here as a guest today. I have one more question for you, and it is what lesson in life are you most grateful for? I'm most grateful. We didn't even talk about this. I'm most grateful for learning. If you know the biblical story of the prodigal son, the prodigal is a straight line. They go do all the riotous living. They do all these things. And he comes back home and he is welcomed home. I am the righteous older brother, the one that never gets it. And when I learned that, I was able to shed a lot of scales and go, okay, I'm as welcomed home as anybody else if I will just turn and be willing to receive. Thank you so much for being here, Tanya. That's fantastic. <laughs> Thank you, Marsha. This was awesome. As always, keep looking for a conversation from me. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Own Your Choices, Own Your Life. If you love this episode, I invite you to tag me on social media with your takeaways or share it with a friend. Please, if you feel called, take 30 seconds to leave a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. Until next time, remember when you own your choices, you truly own your life. Mm -hmm.